Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My next guest is the Executive Director at Adoption Knowledge Affiliates, AKA, a grassroots nonprofit in Austin, Texas, founded in 1992. Her name is Marcy Purcell, and we met in person about five years ago at an adoption conference in Denver, Colorado. I instantly connected with her because of her warm personality, but that's just a part of her strengths. Marcy's first connection to the larger adoptee community was through AKA in 2012, first as an attendee and then serving on their board, including as AKA president. She is also a founding member and past president of Support Texas Adoptee Rights, STAR. She currently serves on the STAR Advisory Board. Marcy is committed to advocacy and reform relating to the rights of adult adoptees, foster care alumni, as well as truth and transparency in adoption. She is also passionate about disability rights, both in the broader community and as they relate to foster care, adoption, and records access. She has a degree in psychology, is certified in psychological first aid, and a certified mental health peer specialist. She is a trained mediator through the UT School of Law Center for Public Policy Dispute Resolution. When not working, for AKA or advocating at the Texas Capitol, she is busy running her vintage small business in Austin and enjoying her family. Allow me to introduce you to Marcy. I always enjoy listening to her because she makes me smile, laugh, and learn something new. Hi, Marcy. I'm so glad you're taking this time to have a conversation with me. How's it going today? Oh, it's going well. The weather's a little overcast, but... So you're in Texas. You're in Austin? I am in Austin, yes. Okay. I've heard a lot of nice things about Austin. In fact, I heard that it's got a similar vibe to Nashville as it relates to the music scene. Have you heard that? Yes, we are famous for our live music. I think uh, we're called the live music capital of the world. I got to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, it's a great place. Let me know if you come, for sure. Well, thank you. So we've known each other for a little while now. We met at an AAC conference. I just know that I see your name pop up quite often in the adoption community. So you want to start with when you first got connected to the adoption community? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, and that relates to my work at AKA because it was actually AKA that, you know, alerted me that there was an adoption community. I really didn't know that everyone was connected. I like to say that we're sort of like a hidden in plain sight because once you discover the community, it's like, oh my gosh, how did I not see everybody out here? <laughs> I like right? that. It's so sight. true. Yeah. And yeah. that's uh, Adoption Knowledge Affiliate, correct? That's right. That's okay. Adoption Knowledge Affiliates. That's where I work. And that's kind of what activated me after I had been attending for some time to work on legislation. And it's a really great group based in Austin, Texas, and primarily serving Texas and kind of the Southwest. But since the pandemic, we've really been able to branch out and serve the, the whole country uh, because of just because of Zoom. Most of our services are on Zoom now. And so people are tapping in from all over the country. But I originally got involved with AKA in, in I think, 2012. I believe I saw a Craigslist ad 
Um, I may have even gotten involved in 2006 and gone to one meeting off of a Craigslist ad and then didn't go back for a number of years because I was just right in the middle of raising kids and doing all that. And then um, went again in 2012 and started going regularly. Just really enjoyed the programming and their mission and scope, honesty and adoption, truth and transparency, all those things that I really treasure as an adoptee, right, are really highlighted and emphasized at AKA. So yeah, that's how I got involved originally. Then I went on to serve on their board of directors and was their president for several years. Took a breather and served on the board of Support Text Adoptee Rights and then came back to AKA in, I think it was 2019, um, after the legislative session because they needed someone to be their program administrator. So that's kind of how I landed in this job. Okay. So I am aware that you've been in reunion for 30 years. Uh, But before we go to that, let's start with your, well, a part of your adoption story. I mean, some of it is very similar to other folks. And then there are a few pieces that, you know, just are a little different. I was relinquished at birth. But because of some disabilities, I was born with a cord wrapped around my neck, and that created some um, problems for me. I was diagnosed with mild cerebral palsy, also had a lot of vision issues. And so the doctors were trying to kind of figure out what was wrong with me. I grew up with the idea that, you know, no one wanted to adopt me because I had disabilities and that I was, you know, available for adoption that whole time. But because of the disabilities, I was not scooped up right away. In retrospect, I'm not so sure that's true. Uh, I was able to obtain the medical portion of my foster care records from the state of New Jersey. Unfortunately, New Jersey is um, not as progressive in this one area uh, as Texas. If I were born in Texas, I would have access to a full copy of my de-identified foster care file, even though I'm, I was adopted. In New Jersey, if you age out of foster care, you can obtain your foster care file. But if you're adopted, your foster care file is sealed upon adoption with all the other uh, records. So that's the case in New Jersey and not mm-hmm. in Texas. Yeah, in Texas, it gets sealed, but a law passed uh, later that does grant folks a de-identified copy of their foster care record. Because right now, Texas is a closed state in terms of... Uh, In terms of original birth certificates. But, you know, there's a whole lot of other adoption law that, you know, we do kind of hold up the OBC record uh, laws as sort of the holy grail, right? Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of other adoption laws that do impact adoptees and foster care youth and um, kinship care folks. That, that, are, that can be just as profound. I'm glad and, you shared that because that is important. There's, there is a lot more besides the original birth certificate. Yes, and not to take away from that right, <laughs> because right. I do, I really do appreciate that, that piece, absolutely. And, um, but it, it certainly has been, I think, just as traumatizing for me not to be able to get my full foster care record, Equ- equally so possibly more so because for me that's three years of information sure. my first three years that I was unable to obtain and and really only in 2017 I think it was was I able to get the medical piece of my foster care record which works out to be about 46 pages of information wow so yeah it's Mm-hmm. But but anyway, so it's yeah, it's a lot of pages of, of information. And so I poured through those when I first got it, the file. And then, um, you know, kind of came to realize that, and this is reading between the lines, but I'm not sure if I was available for adoption for most of that time. Um, you can see in the file, the doctors are trying to figure out what's wrong with me, trying to put a name onto what I had, you know, and just doing all these tests and things like that to accurately diagnose so that the adoptive family would have a better sense of oh, what my needs were. I get it. So when you say you're not sure if you were available, meaning they were working on your medical situation 
before you were made available. Is that it? That's what it. That's what it looks like. Okay. In reading, but sort of between the lines, mm-hmm. and so that's a quite a different narrative from growing up believing I was available that whole time, but just nobody wanted me. Right. You know, and so it sounds subtle, but it it, it does send a completely different message as a kid to what my story was. So I believe for the longest time that I was relinquished for adoption, but then nobody wanted me, right? Your environment, your surroundings. And what I mean by that is if your adoption is not, you know, idyllic, if it's not, if your adoptive family is problematic, your environment is chaotic, you're saying to yourself, well, you know what, at least I found a family, you know, nobody wanted me for so long, at least I found a family, right? And so if there's abuse, you're less likely to report the abuse. If social workers ask you how it's going, you're less likely to say anything because you're feeling like, well, you know, you at least finally got a family. Again, thinking that for three years I was available, but nobody wanted me. It's a different story to find out that, you know, I may have only been available for six months and then was scooped up pretty quickly. You know, I think I would have felt a little more empowered to speak up and speak out about some of the things that happened in my adoptive family had the storyline been been different and possibly been more accurate. When did you learn of a possible new storyline? Were you an adult? Yes, when I got my records. Mm -hmm. So that would have been in 2017. So I would have been mid to late 40s at that time. So yeah, I mean, I lived with this story my whole life. And it was told to me, you know, and I don't know if it was how specifically it was told to me because I was so young. But what I came away with was that I was, quote, hard to place because of my disabilities. I was lucky to find a family. I should be grateful and so there was all that that narrative that makes it really, you know, you're not empowered in your position as an adoptee. And you're, you're already feeling a lot of that anyway. But especially as um, an adopted person with disabilities and having spent three years in foster care, those feelings are, are very much real and very much a part of, of my journey and So when I met you in 2016, I want to say, in Denver, Colorado, at Mm -hmm. the American Adoption Congress conference, you didn't have your records at that time. I didn't have my foster care records, and I didn't have my original birth certificate either. Yeah, so a lot has happened since we met in Mm -hmm. person. And where where do you want to start? Because I really want you to, to tell the listening audience or share your thoughts about the knowledge of the disability community. Okay, sure. Yeah. So I, I began, I guess my, my journey began with my own uh, in terms of caring about identifying as and running to create change in the disability community began with my own journey. Growing up with mild cerebral palsy, as a little kid, I had to wear a helmet. Uh, it was recommended that I get braces, but I, you know, my family didn't go that route. And I, I did really struggle in um, in a lot of the early grades in terms of PE. We all have PE stories, right? But I guess my stories are a little over the top because I didn't have any special accommodations. And there were no, we didn't really have a lot of those 501 what are those 504 laws and things like that? So they could tell something was amiss. Um, my adoptive family chose to put me, you know, put me in regular school, put me in regular everything, which was great. I, I applaud that. But at the same time, without all those accommodations, with all the ADA laws in effect, it was really challenging. At one point, they put me in special ed because I was very slow in the classroom. I was slow to learn. I was slow to respond. And so I was failing everything because I was getting a 50 on on everything because I wasn't having enough time to complete my work. So your adoptive parents did know you had a disability, the Mm -hmm. miles. Yeah, they, yes, they knew it was, it was 
I, by the time they adopted me, you know, that it was well documented that I had, you know, all these issues. And there really wasn't like a robust program with ARDs and, you know, people weren't doing a whole lot of that back in the 70s. So they, they put me in school. They put me in, you know, regular public school. I had a lot of challenges in the early grades in elementary school. Like I said, they put me in special, the, the school put me in special ed, the, like a resource room kind of thing where I excelled because, of course, I had plenty of time then, plenty of time to finish my work. I worked pretty solo during that resource room time. And they were like, well, she doesn't belong in here. So, you know, I was getting A's on everything because there was no time limits. And so they put me back in the regular classroom (laughs) where I proceeded to struggle again. And so I struggled for, you know, most of my, um, all the way through, I think, elementary and middle school, I struggled, but I made it, you know, I made it through. And then high school is a lot more on your own self-paced work. So high school, it it sort of became a non-issue that I needed more time. It was not, time was not as critical in high school. So in terms of, you know, completing things, because you could do a lot of this stuff at home. So then I started to do better, you know, just started to do well and never excelled academically in high school, I would say, but a lot of my friends were smart and, you know, my grades came up. And I still, you know, I still really lacked a lot of confidence academically, but I started to really understand like, okay, now that the, now that the issue of time tests and that sort of thing is, is mostly behind me, I can do this, I can do this. And then I went on and, and uh, went to college and did, did fairly well, struggled the first few years, but then did fairly well the second half. So so that was, you know, so it's been really a, quite a journey, you know, going from really struggling and, and being in special ed and, you know, kind of living that whole thing and then ending and then learning as an adult. Oh, I'm <laughs> I'm going to do OK. You know, I'm, I'm going to be OK. I have a good skill set. And my trajectory has been, you know, all over the map. But uh, in terms of like, you know, what was expected of me early on versus how I've ended up I think it's it's um it's worked out pretty well it is one of the reasons why I do feel like you know the the special accommodations that the ADA uh, brings in are so needed and so they're so wise you know because so many kids without the pressure or even just the confines of a time test I mean it takes me longer because of coordination issues hand-eye coordination processing issues but if I have more time I'm able to do just as much as anybody else just as well as anybody else it's it's more realistic to give the kids that need the extra time the extra time they need because setting them up for failure it doesn't make any sense it's it's so much nicer to have the time you need do well and then as an adult you can excel yes and ADA Americans with, yeah, that's a good question. Americans with Disabilities Act. So you've always known you were adopted. I have always known I was adopted. I think being adopted at three, the adoption was finalized a little after my third birthday. And so you're kind of aware at that time, I guess they could have tried to sweep that under the rug, but actually was the second child adopted in my family. And there were five kids that were adopted in my family and then one one child was uh, the biological child of my parents and then we had many many foster kids come through so there it was a completely different environment in terms of adoption was discussed a lot in my family a lot and there were no there were, there were no secrets about anybody being adopted Tell me what some of those conversations were like when you say you talked a lot about adoption. Well, you know, they were they were complicated in the sense that it was it was very it was almost the opposite of what what a lot of adoptees struggle with. But I think I struggled, too. Everyone knew we were adopted. So we were kind of like that family um, in my town. It was challenging because a lot of my 
siblings had a lot of the challenges that adoptees do have. I kind of retreated into the good adoptee uh, trope where I just sort of kept my head down and, you know, followed the rules as best I could. And not that I didn't, you know, do some crazy things as a teenager, but I really didn't bump up against my parents too frequently. You know, I tried to kind of keep, I did a lot with school. My home life was pretty chaotic with a lot of kids and a lot of, um, a lot of animals, a lot of kids. My adoptive mother was a hoarder, so she hoarded a lot of stuff. And so it was, our home life was pretty chaotic. So I spent a lot of time at school with my school friends. And when I wasn't in school, I was hanging out with my friends as, as a high school um, student. Now, some, and I was some pre- kids would, would think that's ideal. What, yeah. you, know, you know, not having, I guess. The, it was ideal. Yeah. You know, for me, actually, for me, it was ideal. <laughs> there were some things that were not ideal. I did not have a I did not have a lot of supervision Mm -hmm. and that was something that I advocated for. I really didn't want a lot of supervision and I didn't have a lot of supervision and I did make some poor choices, but, but because of that sort of good adoptee identity, I didn't get into a ton of, I guess you'd say overt trouble. I did find myself in some situations that were traumatic and some things I was exposed to that I shouldn't have been, you know, I mean, for me, I, I guess I preferred being, having that independence because when I was at home, it was the opposite. So my adoptive mother was very much like, I, I don't even know the right word for this. She was very active. She was extremely active, um, but active in the sense of we were having to move furniture from point A to point B, house number one to house number two. There was a lot of like upheaval all the time and there were a lot of a lot of kids coming and going from my house. So there were a lot of situations at my house that were dangerous because, you know, when you have a lot of kids who were with traumatic backgrounds, then it's not a very stable environment, especially when there's a lack of supervision. Mm-hmm. See, I can't so even was, imagine. I mean, what you mm-hmm. describe like I was an only child, you know, so I'm just trying to picture, just like, give me an example of a situation that I guess was common, something that was your kind of a common experience, if you can. Okay. So, you know, there were, there were six kids in my family, usually eight, because we'd have a couple of foster kids and foster siblings and we were left alone a lot so so and I I often was in charge quote in charge as the second oldest and my brother was the oldest and he wasn't too keen on being in charge (laughs) (laughs) or or you know so so I was in charge a lot I was left to babysit a lot and Mm -hmm. I didn't you know I didn't I wasn't, I was like 10, you know, eight, nine, 10. Mm-hmm. And there were the, all these kids. It was a little bit of a zoo. It was a lot, lot going on. And so I like, I wasn't good at, you know, I was, it was stressful. You know, my siblings wouldn't listen to me. There was just, it's, it's really hard to put words to it, mm-hmm. but it was, I, I think the best word was chaotic. It was a very chaotic environment. So you have, you, you being the oldest, but you're still so young and you have these little ones younger than you kind of doing their own thing. Like, are they in different rooms? Are they fighting with each other? Like all of it, just all of it. <laughs> Cause chaos, I'm just, yeah. it could be anything. It's yeah. It's literally the opposite of being growing up as an only child yeah I can't even imagine it to me it it really so for me I mean what I think now that I'm an adult looking back Mm -hmm. this is my you know my my perspective but what I feel like is that my my adoptive parents specifically my adoptive mother because it was more her idea is I feel like she created the very situation she was trying to rescue us from Mm. So when she was first starting out, she her story is that she wanted to have 
12 kids, six adopted and six biological. They were unable to have the six biological. This is a story she told you. This is a story she told me. Okay. And so, you know, I don't know, you know, I, I can't verify. This is just what I was told. According to her, her, her plan was to adopt. And I, I think I believe that because even um, before I was adopted, um, before my brother, um, my parents had foster children living with them for some time. And then that ended and then they began adopting kids and, and also fostering more kids. So I feel like she created the very situation that she she originally had this idea that she was going to rescue these children from foster care. And then our house just became those situations that that she was trying to rescue us from. So without getting into too much, there was, you know, there was physical abuse. There was other kinds of abuse that took place because as much as these kids we were all adopted we weren't supervised so it, it was just it was really not your typical you know story I yeah. don't think yeah. <laughs> well I think but I have it was an obvious idea. we were all adopted yeah yeah I have an yeah, idea because as an only child it's quiet a lot it's you know I'm not in charge of anybody but kind of myself and that wasn't hard and so I have a, a little bit of an idea of what, what your experience was Yeah, it was, was never <laughs> quiet at my house. Never quiet. Right. It was a lot of conflict. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, I understand that some of it came from the fact that my siblings and I were adopted. And each kid internalized their adoption differently, right? So, so some kids were angry, you know, about having been relinquished. Some kids were, you know, more complacent about with that information. But a lot of the conflict, I think, stemmed from what just the primal wound, right, stemmed from the fact that we were adopted. But then having so many of us coming from all different backgrounds, because we were not, except for two of my siblings, we were not like, um, you know, biological siblings, So having so many different kids with so many different backgrounds and then foster kids coming through as well, Uh, many of the foster kids being from other countries, some programs that were involved in bringing kids over and um, assisting them medically and then sending them back. Uh, We also had refugees come in and as foster siblings who were coming from, you know, war-torn countries. So there was a lot of trauma under one roof. Mm. And so it was a lot of trauma. And so there were a lot of kids with trauma. So it and sounds then, like um, you, even though you maybe were talking about adoption, it wasn't really going anywhere. Right. We were, well, your question was, did I, you know, did I know I was adopted? And we, we did talk about being adopted a lot. It was almost um, like I alluded to before uh, that, kept some of us at least just in that gratefulness narrative right so you're adopted you're lucky you found a family you had these disabilities so just because we were talking about adoption didn't mean that we were talking about it in a healthy way Mm, okay because see in my family there was no talking period Mm -hmm. so whenever I hear people say Or adoptees say, you know, we talked about it. I'm thinking, oh, yay. You know, like you got to talk about it. But I'm glad you shared that. I mean, if it wasn't. I would say we talked about it (laughs) ad nauseum. Because so like we would go to the dentist office. I remember this one time. And and I started to get, I started to kind of challenge things when I was like 12. And I remember we went to the dentist office and somebody asked my, my adoptive mother like, like about this big brood of kids you know and she said I have six kids five adopted and she say that all the time I have six kids five adopted to anyone who would ask to anyone I mean it was almost like and I asked her one time why do you say I have six kids five adopted like why is that the way you introduce us Mm -hmm. and she said it was because she didn't want people to think that she was one of those women that had a million children biologically you know populating the earth Mm. and so 
I was like, okay. But I was really uncomfortable with the fact that wherever we were, like people did know we were adopted, six kids, five adopted. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we were transethnically adopted, but most of us were not transracially adopted. So I, um, I don't think any of us were transracially adopted. Uh, quite a few of my foster siblings were, you know, in transracial family placements um, in my home. But so a lot of my siblings were transracial foster care Mm -hmm. uh, kids, you know, so it wouldn't have been obvious that I was adopted, except that it was very obvious because everywhere we went, that was that was the topic of discussion. So people would ask her what before she volunteered Oh, she would volunteer it too. She oh, would volunteer it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. She would volunteer it. She was very proud. Mm. She's very proud of all the work she was doing. You know, she had a degree in social work and was very proud of this kind of social work tradition of rescuing kids. All of, I would say that my story of having disabilities was a common theme in my family. Mm. So there were, you know, we were not, you know, we, they, we were not infant adoptions that were $50,000. Here, here's your baby. Mm-hmm. That was not the case for, for my family. We were the kids that were quote hard to place, right? Yeah. We were the kids that had issues or reasons so all um, the kids not being adopted right away your siblings siblings all the kids that were adopted were in foster care at one time um i'm not i i don't think i can i'm I'm not going to answer that Mm -hmm. partially because i don't know the answer to that but also because i feel like that's their story to tell Mm -hmm. which brings me to something that i think is so important and that is oversharing. Like that subject, and I do definitely get back to your story, but just to take a minute out to talk about that, I think it's so important not to overshare and to know, like to learn that early on um, as we engage with uh, the community and just the public in general. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, you and I had talked about this uh, before. I, I agree. I think that I've just was on the NAAP and I think that was my first time really sharing my own story. It is harder to share your own story. And I do feel like because my story involves so many others, like the realities of my story and the traumas that I endured as a kid are because of not just my own singular adoption experience. Though I like to say that, you know, not having access to my records is probably my biggest adoption trauma. But um, but, I know know, what you mean, right? But a lot of my other traumas do involve other people and other adoptees. So I feel like it's hard to tell my story without telling the stories of others. And I I don't want to tell the story of another adoptee, even if they're an adoptee that overlaps with with my story. So so it's it's hard. It's a little harder. I think there's also you know, I am a little fear, fearful about ramifications of telling my story. And I haven't fleshed out like what, what legal protections I have when I talk about my story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, which so, are, you know, oh, it, that's all it, very, very legitimate. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. They're that's real important. concerns. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I, I am careful, but I do feel like I do have a story to tell. I think that this is just my own um, interpretation, but um, the fact that I grew up with a hoarder um, has had real uh, and a real impact on me. And I do think other adoptees who were adopted by hoarders, because I feel like that's another experience. Some adoptees, honestly, it feels like we were hoarded, not adopted. Mm. You know, a person who needs to collect things they collect things. There are people who hoard animals. And I do feel like in my situation that um, my adoptive mother just didn't know when to stop. Mm. You know, there's there's so many kids who need homes. And of course, once you have a parent that's willing to take kids, the state is not helpful in in drawing a line. So they kept asking, you know, and the agencies that she was plugged into kept asking 
for her to take these kids. And if you already have that hoarding gene where you can't draw a line um, on how much to collect, uh, I think it, you know, it was hard for her to say, you know what, my plate is full. I have enough going on here, more, maybe more than I can handle here. I'm going to stop now. Mm. I, I think I think that she had an inability to do that. And I, I know that my adoptive father, there were two more kids that were considered for adoption. And my adoptive father put his foot down and said, no, we, we can't do that. And he was not a very assertive person. But he finally uh, did assert that no, because it, there was just it was so chaotic. <laughs> so I do want to tell my story in the sense that I think that I'm not alone. I think there are probably other people who don't know what words to put to their experience necessarily. And it's probably a very small percentage of the adoptee community, but it's I'm sure it's there. And, and it's oftentimes folks who are transracially adopted or have disabilities that are not empowered to speak up and speak out about their adoption experiences because they were just lucky to find a family, right? So that kind of keeps us quiet for so long about our experiences. Mm -hmm. So you go 18 years in this chaotic home. At some point you leave? Yes. So my... As a teenager, I was like, four more years and I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. Three more years and I'm out of here. <laughs> and I even told my dad that. My dad was kind of like, you know, that one adult, they say that it's good for a kid to have a good one good adult connection. And my dad was that person. Also, my next door neighbors who are still my family. I mean, we call each other sisters and, you know, their mom is, is, is a, I guess, a third mom technically to me. So I had some good, solid adult connections uh, that I of people I knew who cared about me. And my um, my adoptive father I knew cared about me. He had a lot of his own issues, you know, by his own admission, he was seriously flawed. But but he he was caring and kind. And I used to say to him, like, three more years and I'm out of here. Two more years and I'm out of here. And, you know, I knew I was going to go off and find my own, find my own life. And that's really what my plan was. And, and I didn't know what it was, how I was going to do it, but I knew I was. And um, that really kept me, kind of kept me sane, kept me from kind of getting bogged down and depressed in my own situation was I just really felt that fierce independence you know, I got, you know, I was in foster care for the first three years. I remember being new to my family. I remember feeling that feeling of I'm here, but I'm not a part of this. And I just, I've, I always felt very independent. And like, once I was an adult, that's when I was really gonna, you know, make my life the way I wanted it to be. And that forward thinking really was, was really helpful. By the time I was 20, I, um, I did, well, I put in with this program through the state to find my birth mother when I was 18, on my 18th birthday, because I always knew I wanted to find my family, always, specifically my birth mother. I I just was really driven to find her and um, nothing against everyone else. Just that was where my mind was. And so I did that when I was 18. And then by the time I was 20, they I called up, I said, have you made any progress? And they said, no, but we'll move you from our filing cabinet to our desk. Like we haven't even gotten to your file yet. And that was like a year and a half later. So then um, six months later, they said, oh, we found her. We're sending her. We're sending her your information. It may be a little while. She has to respond back by mail. Three days later, I walked into my um, boyfriend at the time, his house, and they handed me a sticky note and said, here's your birth mother's phone number. She's waiting for your call. Mm. So that was that was crazy. And then um, and so then I called and, you know, we we luckily we were on the same page with what we wanted out of our reunion. I think she was a little more aware of what she wanted out of the reunion. I was a little more like hazy. You called right away when they gave you that information. I took I took about I would say like 45 minutes. We were headed out the door. So, so they were like, call, call. And I was like, just, just wait, just give me a minute. And then we ended up like going from point A to point B. And then I called from point B. So that gave me just 
probably about 45 minutes to kind of process. I, it was very, you know how it's just, it was just wild. So then um, I settled down and I called her and I didn't want her to feel burdened or bad or, you know, I wanted to give her peace about her decision. So that was the first thing I said. And then I really didn't know what I wanted after that. I just was like, we could go to lunch once a month. (laughs) You know, I really didn't know what to expect. And I wasn't involved in like the adoption community. I hadn't read any books. You know, I, I was so young that I really didn't think about, I mean, I did think, she might not want to know me. All of those thoughts came through my head, but I hadn't really thought like anything into the future about it. And so she was very happy that I called, happy that we connected, you know, and did want a robust relationship, which she's been really good about pursuing all these years. How did she respond Uh, when you said, I just want you to know that you don't have to feel bad about your decision? Yeah, I mean, I think she was glad to hear it. It, we, it was a phone call, so I couldn't really tell her reactions. Mm-hmm. And I think she was kind of quiet when I said that. Okay. So I'm not sure, you know, I'm not really sure I should ask her. It went well, so I don't think it was the wrong thing to say, you know, because the rest of the conversation went really well. Mm-hmm. And then what was really interesting was I was going to William Patterson College at the time, and which was the only college I applied to. So you're still in New Jersey. Still in New Jersey. It was the only college I applied to. And I tell her I go to William Patterson College. And she says, oh, well, I live in Wayne. And I live like across the street from the college. (laughs) Oh, wow. I was driving by her house every day on the way to and from school. I I mean, I probably saw her getting her mail, you know. (laughs) I mean, it was literally when I say that, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. And so we're both like, so we're both like, okay, well, do you know where Brother Bruno's Pizza is? Sure. Okay. So <laughs> had you been uh, so there before? The the pizza yes, place. I had been there. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, it's right at the corner, right, right up the street. So I was like, okay. So we meet there at like eight o'clock the next morning. I'm driving like 80 miles an hour down Route 80, you know, because how do you not speed on the way to go meet your birth mother? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, oh, if, if I get pulled over, I know what I'm going to say. <laughs> because who, whoever, who says that, right? right. So, so then um, I get there and it was just surreal just driving to college, basically. I was a commuter, so I was just driving to my college to go meet my birth mother, like, of all the places, it was my my regular route, you know, my mm. my route to school. And I mean, even now when I when I go to New Jersey and I drive to her house, it's just so wild because I've been driving that route since before I met her, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I just that's that was just such an odd, surreal kind of, you know, meeting. But yeah, so it went really well and, and we have a great reunion and but that leads to the answer to your question, which is um, then a few months later, I reunited with my biological father and he was living in Texas. And what's really funny is that my adoptive father was born and raised in Texas hmm. and he moved to New York, you know, right. Uh, and where I grew up was right outside of New York City. He moved to New York City. Um, by way of the Air Force to finish school and to go to graduate school. He, so he went from Texas um, and then did the Air Force and then ended up in New York City. And my birth father grew up in New Jersey and then moved to Texas to go to graduate school. So So they they like, they switched (laughs) places unbeknownst to anyone, you know, I mean, it was a closed adoption. Nobody had any idea that I had this double Texas connection. So when I, and my dad, my dad who raised me was, um, you know, he never gave up his Texas roots. So, you know, he always wore the big belt buckle, the boots, you know, he had a a bit of a drawl, like an East Texas accent, which is kind of its own thing. And um, so, so he, you know, I, I, you know, I always felt raised by a Texan and he talked about, you know, his childhood in Texas a lot to me and, and so when I met my birth father and he was living out in Texas, when I did come to visit him, I just really fell in love with Texas. And I felt like, you know, since I'd grown up kind of hearing stories about it, um, I really felt a connection. And 
it happened at just the right time. I was in college in New Jersey, but I'd always known that I wanted to move. I want, you know, I, this was my escape plan. Texas at the time was very affordable, very easy to navigate. Just to really, I moved to Austin. It was just, at that time, it was a much smaller town and um, much more affordable than where I was living in New Jersey. Now, your birth so dad, was, like, was he in Austin? He was in Austin, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that, so, and I find it fascinating that mm-hmm. you really seem to have a, a special bond with your adoptive dad that, yeah, yeah that it's, it was something... There was a connection there that yeah, yeah. it seems like yeah, a my, synchronicity yeah. going on. Yes, exactly. Well, and my adoptive father, who was still living at the time, was thrilled for me to move to Texas. Mm-hmm. He was thrilled. He, he thought it was awesome. And he was super happy to come visit me for my graduation and, and those kinds of things because he hadn't been back here in a, a really long time. And he and my birth father got along really well. So that part of the story works out really well. Unfortunately, my adoptive mother was not so keen on me moving. And so that was a struggle to to get away <laughs> from mm-hmm. her. But I was determined and I moved out here. I had a lot of my own reasons for wanting to move out here. And, and just to a little bit about when I moved here, for years after I moved here, I would have dreams that I was still living in my adoptive family's house. And that my adoptive mother was saying to me, you can live here rent free. And I would wake up in like a cold sweat, like, no, no, I, I moved, but I moved, (laughs) like I escaped, you know, and I didn't realize till later it was like, it was PTSD, you know, it was, it was definitely me feeling like that trapped feeling, you know, my adoptive mother doesn't really want people moving away from her Mm. and um, would continually offer me a place to live in one of her houses that she owned Mm. and rent free rent free but of course nothing is free really right emotionally not free so I I, you know I was like no I'm doing you know this is where I want to be and so I I definitely was super excited to get out here and, and make a way for myself here and um, was just thrilled to, you know, start my life over where people didn't know my last name. They didn't know that I was part of that family, you know, mm-hmm. um, because in, in New Jersey, in our little small town, it was people knew our family, you know, not having that story and not everyone knowing my family. And I was adopted and, you know, I could choose to tell who I wanted to tell my mm-hmm. story. My story wasn't being told for me. So it was really liberating to make the move to tech. Yeah, I think that it's a good point you bring up because I'm same race adoptee and I look like my adoptive family. So I don't have that layer of people knowing without me really telling them. I, mm-hmm. I had that kind of that choice. And I know adoptees, especially transracial adoptees, everybody always knows that they're adopted Mm -hmm. and they can't pick and choose who they can tell. So I know exactly what you mean when you say moving away allowed you the opportunity to pick and choose who you're going to tell your story to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're in reunion with both sides. And so it's been a while now, three decades, right? Yeah, yeah, 30 years we just celebrated. So yeah, it's it's been a long time. And you know, like any reunion, it's had its ups and downs, roller coaster stuff, mostly because of my own, <laughs> my own issues, I think. I mean, there, there's an adjustment. And because I was fiercely independent, because I definitely felt like, um, not really a loner, because I'm definitely, you know, an extrovert and have a lot of friends and have always been that way as an adult, I was, I guess, hesitant to open up, like fully show who I was to my, um, to my birth mom, because I, part of my story is so painful. You know, part of my story is that my adoption didn't turn out how she pictured with the white picket fence and the perfect family. And, you know, that, you know, the dog and the cat and the two kids, you know, or whatever, like they, they told her it was going to be this, you know, it was going to be this idyllic life that she wasn't able to give. 
And that's why she signed those papers, or a big reason why anyway. And then to tell her that it was actually, you know, this other experience, I really didn't want to do that to her. So I kind of reserved a lot of myself from her for a really long time. But she could tell. (laughs) She could tell that I wasn't 100% all in, and she was 100% all in. So in in the very beginning, you didn't say what your adoptive experience was. No, no, I didn't tell her. And she did meet my birth parents and she formed her own conclusions. I'm sorry, my adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. And she formed her own conclusions. And, you know, and my my adoptive father had kind of signaled something to her. Mm -hmm. You know, she really didn't know at the time what he meant. So then fast forward 15 years you know, she started to pull away because I just, I wasn't giving, you know, 100% or even maybe 50%. I was just breezing through New Jersey, checking off my list of people I needed to see and spending like, you know, the obligatory amount of time, but not really like present for our visits, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and you knew um, you weren't present. You knew that. You know, I, I kind of, yeah, kind of. Like I wasn't, I wasn't like being being that way to be mean, I was just kind of incapable of being more than that. Mm -hmm. You know, at least it felt that way to me. Just not letting myself trust the situation and not, I don't know. So then when I, when I just figured out that she was starting to pull away, I, I, that just, I panicked like, Mm -hmm. you know, like anyone would. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, because I treasured the relationship, treasured it. And so I was like, oh, this can't happen. So then I had my sort of come to Jesus moment of like, I'm going to have to, you know, make this real. I'm going to have to if I want this, I'm going to have to be in real relationship Mm -hmm. with her. And so I did. So it's been, um, yeah, I'm guessing that that was maybe at the 15 year mark. Mm-hmm. Could have been at the 20 year mark. I, I can't really remember now, but it's been so much better since then. It's been so much better. Yeah. And, you know, we have a much more solid connection since then. And, and you've talked really about it, I'm sure. That. Yes, yeah. yes. We talked about it at the time. I mean, we we talked through it. And, you know, I shared more about my adoption experience, which was heartbreaking for her. But but it was also like she got to know me better. Mm-hmm. She got to understand me and know me better. And, you know, we got closure on that portion as much as you can get of things. And we're able to move ahead and think more about the now and our relationship now and what we wanted that to look like. And and so it's great. It's, it's opening up to her as hard as it was was one of the most um, rewarding experiences in terms of moving forward and experiencing more of a genuine, full relationship with mm-hmm. her. Yeah, something about the truth. And, and I, because of you, I was able to really talk with at length to Patricia Martinez-Dorner. Oh, uh-huh. And yeah. the, the three things that resonate with me that she has shared many times, I'm sure with the community, is truth, that what what adoptees want is truth, knowledge, and connection. And what you just shared between you and your birth mom, I think has all three when you decided, let me be all in. That's the potential, the healing potential that Patricia talks about, the healing potential in search and reunion that I've really been kind of sitting with. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, you know, I'm in reunion. Of course, I did the search both sides and I know the healing potential, Uh, but to share it with an audience or even one-on-one with other people, Patricia's helping me to formulate the language. Mm. Yeah. And, and your example to me is that's it. Truth, Mm -hmm. knowledge, and connection. That's what adoptees, that's what we want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting that I'm so glad you guys connected. Um, <laughs> because I, you know, we, I forget how we got to talking about Patricia, but. So you um, told yeah, me to check she's... out the Monday. Yeah. The adoption network oh. Cleveland 
Monday yeah. series, speaker series, mm -hmm. I believe it's called. Yeah. And so I pulled it up, the YouTube, and watched it at least three times because it, <laughs> it was so, it was just brilliant. There's so much wisdom oh in there. Oh, my There's goodness. There's so much wisdom. And she, as it she's relates, amazing. she really is. And it's um, it's interesting, yeah. those the, the things that she says about search and reunion. Mm -hmm. It's like she, it's like, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I just didn't have the language mm -hmm. uh, when people, because I get a, I get a significant number of people that adoptees who call me who are very ambivalent. They're, you know, they're because it isn't, it isn't easy. It's not for the faint at heart to search mm -hmm. and be in reunion. Right. It really isn't. Right. I'm not. It's, it's hard work. <laughs> it's hard yeah. work. It's not a spectator sport. Yeah. <laughs> reunion is not a spectator sport. Yeah. yeah. And so I want to be able to, to formulate in a couple of sentences, at least the language. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like Patricia gave me that. Like I've just got so oh, empowered. So cool. I think I mentioned she was the first keynote speaker for AKA. So, so it's very, you know, it's all connected, you know, the other piece that, that makes it hard to, to have those things. The thing that was kind of stopping me, um, one of the, one of the big things was vulnerability because in order to have a real relationship with somebody, you have to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I think as a former foster, you know, alum, and then raised in a really chaotic environment where vulnerability was not an asset. Mm. So I learned not to be vulnerable, right? I toughened up. I rarely cried when I was a kid. My my family used to give me flack because my grandfather passed away and I didn't cry, you know, and they thought that meant I didn't care. You know, when I would lose people, I would just go, oh, that's sad and just kind of move on, you know. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because I didn't care, but it was because of that vulnerability piece. I didn't want other people to see me vulnerable. I didn't want to be vulnerable. And in order to have a really strong connection with somebody, you have to be vulnerable. And as adoptees, man, even adoptees that, you know, would have a more traditional story of adoption, you know, obviously we know there's layers to all those stories, right? So it's like, it's so hard for us to be vulnerable. And that's the one thing that we really need in order to be, you know, in relationship with other people is, is kind of that vulnerability. And of course, if they're, if they're good for you, if they're, if they're a positive person, they're not going to take advantage of that vulnerability, but we don't know. We're unsure. We don't know, you know, so I think that that was what was stopping me for so long was that not that I didn't trust my birth mother specifically, but I was so used to, you know, I was conditioned to not let myself be vulnerable through my own childhood experiences. I picked up that it was a bad thing to be vulnerable. When did you, so, I guess, decide I'm not, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to. Yeah, it was when she started to pull away. <laughs> so, because I'm thinking that's Absolutely. not something you learn overnight to be vulnerable. I mean, it was, so it was actually, okay, so I mean, I had my own family and, you know, with, with my husband, you know, I, you know, we had trust and I think I was pretty vulnerable in that relationship, allowed myself to be. And I had already had my kids by the time she started to pull away. So I had other areas where I knew what, are, what a, a deep relationship should look like mm. but I still was having trust issues you know with just you know other people in my life and I think too because my mother figure as a child was a dangerous figure to me you know my adoptive mother was not somebody that I felt I could trust I had problems with this new mother figure who was not new obviously but to me was new Tr trusting like She's calling her mom. Well, mom to me is a dangerous word. So I don't really feel comfortable using the word mom with my birth mother because that's, to me, that's pairing her with what had been a dangerous thing to me as a child. So it's so complicated. But honestly, I have to say, like, she jarred me. She jarred me out of it. I was jarred out of my complacency. Not letting her in. And just kind of going through the motions was sort of a form of complacency, right? I wasn't actively engaging in, in, in the relationship. And so, like, 
it, it, it did happen overnight where I went from being like, oh, I'm so fine coasting through this to, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm about to lose her, you know, and it did it did kind of it was it kind of took a couple of weeks, a lot of deep conversations with her. It was like my come to Jesus moment, like this reunion's going to fall apart if I don't start actively engaging in it. What's so funny is it's only benefited me. It's yeah. been so beneficial for me, you know, something that I kind of like was resistant to has turned out to be so beneficial. Like, I'm so grateful that she kind of jarred me out of that because it's also helped uh, my other relationships. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to ask you. What has been the most valuable thing you've learned about being in Reunion? Yeah, I mean, I'm, let's see, I'm definitely more... Um, I don't take people for granted as much. I don't take those meaningful relationships for granted, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I'm, I'm much more, um, what's the right word? I, I put more effort and I, and I also then receive more reward from my relationships. And I, I don't feel so much of a singular person. Mm-hmm. I know one of the things that I, remember you mentioning is because you've been in reunion for three decades, you've had the opportunity to see little ones grow up and they've not known you. Right. That's been great. So like (laughs) my kids have grown up with my birth family as their family. Right. So to them, I mean, they're aware of the reunion story and you know, now that they're young adults or adults, they can see some of what adoption has done to my family relationships because it's never quite the same right as not being adopted but but in their minds you know my birth family it's that's their family Mm -hmm. there's no caveat you know there's no caveat grandma is grandma grandpa is grandpa Mm -hmm. you know they they are and and my step parents are their grandparents as well so they're they're very embedded in that family and and vice versa like my birth family just embraced me I mean they embraced me right away (laughs) I'm the one who took a little while to come around and they embraced my kids absolutely you know they didn't miss a beat yeah yeah so it's been really cool that's been really cool that Mm -hmm. the almost the you know my reunion although uh, absolutely I appreciate it it's been such a gift to my kids for me to have gone out, risk my vulnerability, right, mm-hmm. and really form some solid connections with them has been kind of the biggest gift that I've been able to give my kids. That's that's so. really great. So in closing, is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like to share with the adoption community? You know, probably just a little bit about just how powerful AKA has been. You know, even when going through this situation with my birth mom and and strengthening our reunion, it's been great to have like sounding board of other adoptees to talk through this, you know, reun- these reunion ups and downs and the peer support that AKA offers is like just so valuable. <laughs> I can't even put words to it. And then also being activated to work on the legislation, which has really always been an issue in my mind. Um, Even as a kid, I didn't understand why records were sealed and I felt very othered and like very, I don't know what the right, discriminated against the fact that my records were sealed for me, never sat right with me. And AKA was kind of my avenue to working on the legislation um, with people like Connie Gray and Don Scott, who had already been doing stuff in that um, in that arena, I was so glad to be able to lend my voice and my time and attention, full attention to that issue for for quite a number of years. And so, and AKA was the gateway for that, and it has been for other people as well. So. Um, I just, you know, really can't say enough good things about now I'm working for AKA, but even before then, I just really appreciated what the legacy, they've been around for about 30 years too. We're coming up on the 30 year anniversary for AKA. Wow. So it's, uh, it's a really, um, good group with a really good mission of, of connection, support and education, 
on mm-hmm. those those things that are so critical to our community. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Marcy, it was so good. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to share in this kind of comfortable, you know, relaxed. Um, you're so good at what you do. I appreciate you. When I make my way to Austin, Texas, one of my first calls will be to Marcy so we can plan to spend some time together in what I've heard to be a very cool city. I like how Marcy took a second look at why she remained in foster care as long as she did. The narrative can certainly change when we re-examine our stories for the purpose of empowering us. Her longevity and reunion and being connected to the adoption community makes her an excellent person to receive guidance from. The complexities that come along with reunion is always worth the preparation and support from the adoption community. That can often best be accomplished by hearing from others who have traveled a rocky road and learned from their experiences. Marcy is a valuable resource to our community with her commitment to adoption knowledge affiliates. She has shifted the focus from herself as an adoptee to helping others along their healing journey. When Marcy said in this episode that being unable to get birth records was another traumatic event for her, that was a light bulb moment for me. It takes me back to something she said at the beginning of our talk, things being hidden in plain sight so true. Thank you, Marcy, for having a conversation with me. I welcome any time we can chat about being adoptees and anything else related to adoption or not. Your support through the years has been a blessing to me, and I only hope others will soon come to know the beauty of what makes you, you. If you are an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit jenniferdianeghoston.com. Thank you so much for being here, and be sure and follow me on Instagram at Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land.